0: Exodus chapter 12. We're going to uh, continue our study of the Passover here this evening. We started our study of this uh, a couple of weeks ago. It took us two weeks to get through that first point, the Passover instituted. The first 20 verses of the chapter is Passover instituted. That is the instructions that are laid out by God uh, through Moses to the children of Israel and the regulations that, that they're to follow. Uh, in this commemorative event of Passover. Well, tonight we're going to begin in verse 21 and following, and we're going to look at Passover being implemented. This is the actual event of the Exodus itself. And that's we'll look at verse 21 to verse 42. And and again, we'll just make it as far as we can, uh, if we can finish that section tonight. then uh, Then we'll eventually get to the third point, that is Passover... Regulated. So in other words, it's, it's similar to those first 20 verses of the chapter. It's going to add different information, some repetition, but then some addition, some new information that's added as Passover. There's some further regulations that are put down for Passover. And again, the whole point is to see the, em- the emphasis that the book of Exodus is giving to this event. It's hugely important. We see two whole chapters dedicated to uh, the Passover and, and the significance of this. And so it is, it is worthy of careful study and examination. But our, fo- excuse me, our focus tonight, number two, the Passover implemented. We're going to look at three, again, big thought flow, uh, three big ideas. Verse 21 to 28, Moses instructs the people. Again, we're going to see some repetition here from what we saw in the first 20 verses of the chapter, but Moses is going to instruct the people, second, Yahweh, is going to smite the firstborn, right? The actual 10th plague uh, descends and God's judgment is enacted as verses 29 and 30, and then, of course, Pharaoh initiates the exodus as he says, okay, enough's enough, right? You guys can go now. <laughs> and that, of course, the exodus itself kicks off, verse 31 to 42, all right, so again, uh, we got a mouthful tonight, and I don't know if we'll get through all that, but there's uh, a lot of stuff here for our learning. So if you've got your Bible, let's look at uh, verse 21, and let's read at least down to verse 28, and let's begin there with this uh, section where Moses instructs the people, okay? So Exodus 12, verse 21 says, "'Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, "'Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover.'" And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood upon the lintel and the two side posts, the Lord will pass over. There's the idea where we get the term Passover from. But the Lord will pass over the door and not "'Suffer the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. "'And you shall observe this thing for an ordinance to you and your sons forever. "'And it shall come to pass when you shall, or when you become to the land which the Lord "'will give you according, as he has promised, that you shall keep this service. "'And it shall come to pass when your children shall say to you, "'What mean you by this service?' "'That you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover.'" who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshiped. In other words, as Moses gave them these this set of instructions, they respond with humility, bowing their head and worshiping God. Verse 28, and the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. Pause there. Now, As I mentioned just a moment ago, we do see in this section a bit of repetition, some things that we've already seen in the first 20 verses. But then we also see a couple of points where Moses elaborates uh, from the prior instruction. So repetition, elaboration, all right? First, again, the repetition is considerable in this passage, and so we don't need to uh, rehash all that we've already discussed when it comes to what God has instituted uh, for Passover and what we discussed in the previous 20 verses but again, the effect is that God is instructing them, trying to, you know, repetition, right? Key, the mother of learning, as it's sometimes called. The idea of drilling it into the mind of the hearer slash reader, as these are important things that God wants to get get across. So there's a bunch of repetition that we see, but there's a couple of points of elaboration I want to draw your attention to. First, Amidst the repetition, Moses elaborates upon certain elements that were not contained or developed in the first twenty verses. For instance, verse twenty-one highlights how Moses met with the elders. Now, again, this is another subplot to the story, and we've we've commented on it two or three times. We haven't taken a ton of time to develop it, per se. But the elders—you could trace this through the book. Uh, The elders. Were mentioned back in chapter four, for instance, verse twenty nine to thirty one. Right when Moses first arrived back from his his time at way in Midian, if you recall this, he shows up. He he demonstrates to the elders the signs that God gave to him at the burning bush. Right, the three signs, and that was the means of authentication for Moses as the spokesperson of God. So he performed those signs before the elders, and they believed. The Lord, it says, and Moses, and they, of course, begin to follow his leadership. Well, as soon as they hit a snag and, God, you know, God sends Moses and Aaron in before Pharaoh and, and says, hey, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh, that I should hear him. And he kicks back, right? He pushes back a little bit and he actually gets mad and he, sends, he says, hey, you guys get back to work, right? But he takes the straw, but they have to conti- continue to keep the same quote of bricks, et cetera. Well, when that happened, of course, the Israelite, and it doesn't use the term elder, uh, but it's, it's possible that they were involved in this. The leadership of Israel were denouncing Moses and Aaron at that time. In other words, they're, saying, they're getting mad that, hey, you, were, uh, you made things worse, right? Well, again, this idea we can assume, this idea of the resistance of the elders to Moses demonstrated in chapter 5, We can assume that, again, they haven't been mentioned between then and now, but we can assume that this attitude that they expressed before toward Moses gradually but definitely changed with each successive plague as the Israelites were spared and the Egyptians were humiliated. So now Israel was ready to obey Moses' instructions. All right, so he honors the existing leadership that's there. Again, we've already talked about it. This is a patriarchal society. So these elders would be leaders of their particular families, clans, and tribes. And so he gathers them, and he says, all right. And he gives to them the instructions, which also helps us not to—we won't get lost in this, but it does help us visualize how it worked. We'll get a better picture of this later with the whole Jethro advice in chapter 18 of the book. But Moses' leadership style was to, again, God was using Moses and Aaron as the key leader spokesmans, right for the nation. Uh, but nonetheless, they would still operate with, within this system. of They would meet with the elders, and then it would kind of have a trickle-down effect, if you will. In other words, don't necessarily visualize Moses standing up in front of a crowd of 2 million people and using a megaphone, right? That's not how it worked. <laughs> Rather, he gathered with a, with a core group of leaders— which would then pass the message down, all right? And so that's what this verse is telling us, verse 21. So again, as it says, he meets with the elders, but Moses then rehearses the instructions that were given to him by God in the, in the previous 20 verses, which we've already talked about the last couple of weeks. But he elaborates particularly upon the act of applying blood to the door. Verse 22, for instance, specifies that the elders are to use hyssop to smear the blood on the dwellings. So this is the first reference to hyssop. Hyssop is a plant, right, that has many stalks. And it would have been uh, an effective brush of sorts. And its use, again, prevents the blood from coagulating. In other words, they can mix it right in the basin and then spread it over the door, the post and the lintel. And what's interesting is, again, this is the first mention of hyssop in the account. This is an elaboration. But from here forward, what we're going to see is that Hyssop is going to become a key component in later purification rituals. Uh, We're going to see, for instance, in Leviticus 14, this was a key component. It was required to be used in the ceremony, the ritual to cleanse the leper from leprosy, as well as the touching. If you were defiled because you touched a, a corpse, according to Numbers chapter 19, they also were to be cleansed with hyssop. Now, because of these... Legislative requirements and ceremonial law, hyssop then of course becomes a symbol of purification. Perhaps it's most well known in David's prayer of repentance in Psalm fifty-one, verse seven, where he prays and he asks God, "Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow." Right? Of course, uh, he's he's talking there of an internal cleansing, a forgiveness that God is granting to him. Nonetheless, hyssop is being harnessed as an agent uh, or, you know, uh, an instrument that God is using in the process of cleansing. But not only does does Moses draw attention to the hyssop, but he next draws attention to the door. Now, we talked about this a a little bit last week, so we can make quick work of this. But Moses draws attention to the door to which the blood was to be applied and from which the inhabitants were to avoid until morning, right? They were to stay inside uh, so that God would pass over. Verse 22, right, it mentions the hyssop, but also says, okay, strike the lintel to side posts with blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. I mentioned this last time, so again, we can make quick work, but doors were vulnerable, vulnerable places of entrance and access to a house, right? It was the the hole in the wall, if you will. And as such, they were associated with a number of superstitious ideas in ancient Near Eastern cultures. Uh, we have some examples of this in the scripture. I mentioned last time, I think the uh, the Philistines in particular, uh, 1 Samuel 4 and 5 highlights their Uh, superstition associated with doors and thresholds in particular and that was largely due i mean there was already a a superstitious idea associated with it but it became they became all the more superstitious of doorways and thresholds you remember because when god the ark of the covenant was taken remember where they put the ark of the covenant In in dagon's temple remember but what happened to that idol of dagon That's right. God knocks it over to where it's bowing. It's on its face before the Ark of the Covenant. So they say, well, that's not supposed to be there. So they pick it up, set it back in place. They come in the next day and it's fallen over again, but this time the head and the hands are broken off and it's fallen over the threshold. And it says, from therefore, the priests of Dagon would no longer step on the threshold. Right, they would step over the threshold, and you know, again, it was a superstitious belief associated with that event, but they were like, oh man, maybe Dagon just trips up over thresholds, so we should avoid thresholds, right? and, w- and of course, we find humor in that. Uh, some believe that, by the way, this is actually, it's, 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 it's later derived from Roman uh, belief and practice, but this is the whole practice of carrying the bride over the threshold. You ever heard that? right, it actually roots back to some of these superstitious ideas, all right, that it was like to bless your home, right, a new bride, and, you know, husband, wife, the husband is to carry the bride over the threshold. Why? Well, it was supposed to be good luck. Why? Well, because it's actually connected back to these ancient superstitions uh, of doorways. So it's interesting, Isaiah 57, verse 7 and 8, will also talk about this. God condemns them for this because they were setting up idols and shrines in their doorway, uh, in order to, again, try and ward off evil spirits to protect the door, right? Um, again, we have equivalents of this in many societies throughout much of history, but idols, images, charms would often be placed or used in doorways. So again, I think it's interesting, appropriately then, that Yahweh promises protection to the inhabitants uh, of, this, of the, uh, you know, each home when they apply blood to the doorposts. Again, this is not merely a superstition because as Hebrews, well, as verse 13, we talked about this last time, but as verse 13 points out, as well as Hebrews 11, verse 28, this was a token of their faith, right? It was an external symbol of their internal faith in God. In other words, they believed God that he would indeed keep his threats as well as his promises, and so they followed God's word, and, and that evidence of their faith is what God was looking for. And again, Hebrews eleven twenty-eight 28 makes this explicit. It is by faith that they sprinkled the blood of Passover. And so it was an act of, of, of obedient faith. But that token was meant to protect them from the destroyer, according to verse 23. Now, we touched upon this a little bit uh, a few weeks ago. Let me just reiterate the difficulty, the debate when it comes to verse 23. And not just this verse, but many other passages where this uh, appears. But it says in verse 23, that the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two side posts, the Lord will pass over. Again, there's our word where we get with the word Passover, but he will pass over the door and not suffer the destroyer to come into your house to smite you. Now, again, we mentioned this before, but the identity of the quote unquote destroyer mentioned in verse 13, as well in verse 23, is a matter of disagreement among commentators. There's four basic options at play. And again, we could get you know, derailed in a discussion of this, but feel free to give me your thoughts. First, some will define this destroyer as a demon operating within the confines of God's allowance. For instance, I cross reference there 1 Kings 22. What's 1 Kings 22? Remember this? This is Ahab, wicked King Ahab. See, I am going to get off into this, but wicked king of the north, King Ahab, is uh, he's been... Destined by God to dis, to be destroyed, to die. But God, you remember, because Micah. Okay, see, I'm too far in. So Ahab was going to go to the battle in remote Gilead. Do you remember this? And remote Gilead is, a, is a, a a city. It's on the outskirts of Israeli territory. It's in modern day Jordan. It's east of the Jordan River. But it was kind of, it was always being battled over. Israel lost it, gained it, you know, lost it, regained it. Well, Ahab is wanting to go fight the Syrian army, the uh, you know, Arameans, they're also known by, and regain the city of remote Gilead. So he gets Jehoshaphat, remember this, to come and help him. Jehoshaphat's king of the southern kingdom, Judah. Long story short, Jehoshaphat says, hey, we need to hear what God has to say about this battle because Jehoshaphat was a godly king. So Ahab says, okay, no problem. And he, he parades before Jehoshaphat 400 false prophets who all, all say the same thing. And they're just stroking Ahab's ego, and they're saying, oh, man, you're going to win. You can't lose this battle, right? You are great, O king. And Jehoshaphat says, okay, do you have a single prophet of Yahweh? And Ahab says, well, yeah, but I don't like him very much. <laughs> you remember this story? It's, it's really comical, but he says, I, we have a prophet, but we don't like him. But I don't like him. He says, because every time he prophesies, he says something mean about me. Right, and it's like, well, that should be clue one. (laughs) You know, you know what I'm saying? If the prophet of God never has something good to say about you, then maybe you should change. But anyway, so they bring Micah or Micaiah again. You know, before uh, the kings, and you remember the guy who who fetches Micah is coaching him along the way. He's bringing him before the kings, and he's saying, "All right, we have 400 dudes, and all 400 guys said." That the battle was going to be a success. So why don't you just fall into line, say what you're supposed to say, and we can go home and you know, get our lunch. Or, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure that's what was, what was on his mind. So Micah says, all right. He says then, so he shows up and he says, oh, king. And, he must, and we don't know. He must, he must have been saying something you know, sarcastically. Yeah, but he says, oh, king, you're going to go and you're going to win. Right? This is going to be a great battle. And Ahab says, all right, Micah, how many times do I got to tell you? Tell me the truth. And Micah says, all right, you asked. (laughs) And so he says, here's the truth. He says, I saw a vision. And he's really fascinating where he says, this is the vision. I saw Yahweh, the king of kings, lord of lords, sitting upon his throne, surrounded by his heavenly hosts. And Yahweh speaks and says, all right, guys, Ahab needs to die at remote Gilead. Anybody got an idea? So God puts it out, and it says the heavenly hosts start giving options. Well, how about this? How about this? How about that? And then it says... An evil spirit steps forward and says, I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of the false prophets. And I will convince Ahab to go. And Yahweh says to the evil spirit, All right, you got the job. Now, do you remember as soon as Micah, the true prophet, says that, one of the false prophets steps forward and slaps him in the face. Right, And, he, and, he, and again, he's, he's trying to demean Micah. But Micah just told the truth, right? They asked him to tell the truth, he told the truth. And he basically said, those 400 prophets, they're all a bunch of liars. And here's the reality. You go to that battle, you're gonna die. The nation of Israel is gonna be scattered as sheep without a shepherd because the king is gonna die. Well, that, again, wasn't a popular message, but it was a true message. But there's a lot that we can get into that story. But the point is, the best, there's there's a debate on that, but probably the best way to interpret the evil spirit that God allows to go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of the 400 false prophets is is a demonic spirit. In other words, it's a spirit that is already out for malevolent purposes, right? But God is allowing even them to work in his providence. Do we have other examples of this in scripture where God allows wicked beings or people to do wicked things, but God is ultimately overriding the purpose? All right, Job's the classic, right? Right, that's, that's the big one. Job's the good, that's probably the best example. Well, there's other examples, but, but we see that's probably the best example. So the concept is that, so some view the destroyer here as a demonic spirit that is being used or allowed by God to go and perform the deaths. Option number two, some will say that the destroyer may well be God himself. We already read these passages in a couple of weeks back, a few weeks ago, but in Psalm 105, uh, Psalm 135, Psalm 136, three times in the Psalter, it is, God says, I myself went through the land of Egypt. All right. So some will read that as God himself, um, which I think is, is possible. But when our verse, verse 23 says, the Lord will pass through. And then it says, he will not allow the destroyer to come in. In other words, it seems like there's two different entities at work here. So, though Yahweh is ultimately credited with what happens here, because He allows it, right? He even foretold it. But it's probably better to view there is some other agent at work. So, option number three is the destroyer may be an angel acting on God's behalf. For instance, we see that uh, the word angel is actually used in Psalm 78. Uh, And again, in our passage, it seems that the destroyer and the Lord are two separate individuals uh, being at work here we see other examples of this where the lord sends an angel a destroying angel in fact Uh, you remember that second samuel 24 is where david was counting the the people remember this and then god was he sent an angel and the angel was holding a sword over the city of jerusalem remember this and uh that that's a, a picture of that destroying angel but then last but not least some will suggest that the destroyer might be quote unquote the angel of the lord which is an old testament appearance of the second member of the triune godhead. right? we've talked about this many times. What's that?
1: Could this be the same one as the curse with David and or got you know, with David and over the
0: garden oh. of Eden? when we the curse of David. Oh, when they got kicked out of the garden of Eden and the and the angel the that was guarding the, the way and the of the child and all that. Oh, sure, yeah. Well, it's it's possible. The promise there, are you talking about the promise of Genesis 3.15, the idea of uh, God announcing that the... There would be a curse and he's one who did the curse. Yep. hmm Yeah, and especially if you take this fourth view in particular, then yeah, it might be parallel. In other words, and you're familiar with this, right? You have many angels, little a, but then you have the angel of the Lord that it's a figure appears several times, a couple dozen times in the in the Old Testament. And... Again, we've talked about it before. It deserves its own series, really, series of lectures. But it's, it's most likely the angel of the Lord is most likely to be identified as an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, Jesus right? The second member of the triune God. Uh, and so some believe that because the angel of the Lord is mentioned several times in the book of Exodus from here forward, right? The angel of the Lord is, is the person who appeared in the burning bush, Exodus 3. He's also the one who's going to lead them out of of egypt the the glory cloud uh sometimes there's a debate on that wait till we get chapter 14 there's a debate on whether the angel of the lord and the glory cloud are two you know one one in the same right or two different entities there's a debate on that but we see several passages and here's a here's a good one where it seems like there's two divine figures at work and yet you know because we see the lord and then the destroyer is singled out but if but if that's the case. Then again, the angel of the Lord being second member of the triune Godhead may well be at work here. You had a thought? just picturing God going through all of Egypt with this little destroyer following behind him who is throwing what God is throwing him to destroy. That's what I was going to say. Destroy. Yeah, like this destroyer yeah. is not very smart. <laughs> sure. No, that's <laughs> no, good. In other words, I think, and I think you're right, I think that's probably how we should visualize it, is we see, you know, two figures, if you will going through the land of Egypt. By the way, this same sort of thing is going to happen in the book of Ezekiel. It's going to happen in the book of Revelation, where God sends out an angel to go and put a mark. Remember, this is Ezekiel. Put a mark on all the faithful in the city. And this, again, I'm getting, we're too deep in, so we're just going to keep talking about it. But Ezekiel (laughs) describes, it was, because Ezekiel's telling us about the destruction that's coming upon the city of Jerusalem in in 80, or not 80, 586 BC. Well, he says, I'm going to give the city up to destruction, but I'm going to save a remnant. So he sends an angel with an ink horn, do you remember this? And he goes through the city and he marks all the faithful remnant, and they're the ones that are going to be spared from the sword. And then God says, then I'm going to send in the destroyer who's so going to wipe everybody else out. In other words, this seems to be parallel to that. that, that Yahweh is going in and he's identifying each house that has been marked, right, with the blood. And then the destroyer is in tow. And the, the, the houses, you know, he goes from one, he says, oh, that one's good, that one's good, that one's, oh, no mark there. destroyer goes in, comes back out, next house. And they go house to house to house to house throughout the land of Egypt. In other words, it's a picture of an exhaustive investigation. Every single home is being investigated. And those who are faithful to God, and put the token, you know, blood on the doorposts, are spared. Because what happens? God says to the destroyer, don't go in there. And they pass over the house. The house is protected by the blood. All right? You guys got some wheels turning. Right, you got thoughts? So I'm getting a bunch of faces like, "Whoa, thinking about this." Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I think it's probably an allusion to the cultural um, aspect of primogenitor. In other words, each uh, family, the firstborn male offspring was identified as the next, you know, leader. Once he, you know, grew up and came to fruition, whatever, he would become the uh, the leader of the clan. So each family had, you know, a firstborn. Now, it might not be in your immediate, you know, family nucleus, you know, if that makes sense, but in your family, you know, your extended family, there was always a firstborn in every family, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, Gordy, you got a thought? Then did you have some? Okay, Gordy? Well,
1: in John chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as a door. Mm-hmm. And then when you think of Jesus' blood being on you, that was save the destroyer from taking you into Hades for ever and ever. Mm -hmm. In fact, in that same chapter, a thief is described as to kill and destroy the thief that comes into the the Mm -hmm. people. Mm I mean, I'm just trying
0: to tie it into Jesus. Sure. Um, So, I mean, as you're percolating that thought, so are you Are you going back to maybe favoring that first view? The destroyer is a demonic spirit at work? Okay. And so God's going through, and He's saying, "That one, yep, you can take that one. Nope, not that one. Yep, this one. Nope, he not. Okay, interesting. Linking it to John 10, and Satan who seeks to kill and destroy. Okay, interesting.
1: Same with Job. with Job, He said he can only do certain things to do.
0: Right? Yep, that's right, exactly. So if it's a demonic spirit, He's still restraining that spirit, exercising dominion over it. Lisa, and then we got several hands. Go ahead.
1: Mm. And that's what protect protects us
0: from going with Satan. Yeah, that's good. Well. So it seems like
1: he treats every individual now as a firstborn that has to be accepted into his his list, his his house. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm.
0: you're not, you're not on that list, then the destroyer gets you. That's good. That's good. Did y'all catch that? In other words, there's a parallel here with the New Testament revelation and well, Old Testament has some comments on it too, but the book of Revelation talks much about the book of life or the Lamb's book of life. And it's similar concept, right? That those who are marked, if you will, by the blood, the blood has been applied to them. They are protected. They're passed over. Exactly. In other words, they're, they're left in the book, right? Because Revelation 3 says if you're uh, in rebellion against God, or not, without the righteousness of Christ. If you're without that, then your name is blotted out of the book, and so they are given over to the destroyer. That's why we got to be born again, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's not enough. In other words, so let me loop that thought. As Fred just mentioned, then we'll come to Simone. But we have, and this is again my take on it. There's some debate on it, but the book of life is probably best viewed because you have about a dozen references to it in the Bible, Old and New Testament. Book of Life is probably best viewed as a book that contains the name of every living individual. So if you have ever been born physically, right? As my dad used to say, born once, die twice, born twice, die once, right? Uh, but that idea of the Book of Life is every name of a, you know every living human being uh, is in that book. However, your, book can, your name can be removed from that book... Through sin, right? The book uh, Psalms talks about that. How sin will will remove us from the book, and then Book of Revelation specifies that it's specifically those who uh, are do not have the righteousness of Christ. So, in other words, we've all sinned, so we're all under threat of being removed from that book. But if we have the blood applied, then our name remains in that book. It's passed over. It's protected. But for those who remain in their sin without the blood applied, their name is blotted out. And now the book of life becomes the lamb's book of life because he's the one who owns, he purchased every person whose name remains in that book because their blood is his blood supplied. So the book of life becomes the lamb's book of life. It's the same book, but it's those who have, you know, it's after those who have been removed because. They don't have the blood of the Lamb. Does that make sense? Second
1: edition.
0: It's the second edition. <laughs> well said. Oh, I like that. Oh, I like that. So, That's right. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So we're seeing the, the, the same principles being laid out here that are going to be fleshed out you know, in more detail later. Exactly. What was your thought? And then we'll um, come over here. Somebody has to point out to the destroyer who the firstborn in that family is. That's oh, that—that's what you were. I missed that. I'm sorry.
1: You got five kids in the house? Which
0: of those five Oh, I'm sorry. So I was thinking, how did each household identify it? But you're talking, how did the destroyer identify it? uh I see. I see. I see. Thank you for clarifying that. I missed that when you said that. So that's yeah. There you go. Another interesting function of the Lord passing through, pointing out. Even to the destroyer, that one, out of the family of however many, that's the firstborn, that's the one that dies. Ah, good. Okay, excellent. Good observation there. Sorry I missed that. Yes?
1: I was doing like Mr. Gordy was doing. My wheels were spinning and connecting it to Jesus. And when he said that about in John, Jesus, the the door, um, it made me think also in John is where the drink is presented up on the hyssop branch. And I was wondering if there was some... Like symbolism in, in that when Jesus receives, when he's on the cross and he receives the vinegar up
0: on the hyssop branch. Oh, back to the hyssop. Yes, yeah. I absolutely think so. so yep. Absolutely. So in other words, and this is another whole rabbit trail, but uh, I'm glad you brought it up. Glad you asked. So hyssop is, trace it through the scripture, right? Just get a concordance, trace it. You'll see it's, and I think this is the very first reference to it in the Bible, it was right here in Exodus 12. But from here forward, like I said, Le- Le- Leviticus 14, you know, Numbers 19, you'll end Psalm 51. You'll see it show up several times. But it's it's always for that uh, instrument of cleansing. But what you'll find is when you get to the passion narrative, the cross of Christ, and and this was several years ago uh, when I when I taught through that. It is so fascinating that every major component of the sacrificial system is going to appear somewhere in the crucifixion narrative. And, <clears throat> and it's, it's remarkable, because Jesus is dying on Passover, right? He's called the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He's also, you have Jesus and Barabbas, right, set side by side, the casting of lots, if you will, that, that takes place on Yom Kippur, one is selected to be set free. The other is selected to die, right? And I mean, we could go on and on about all the different, but h- the, the hyssop makes an appearance, exactly. And I, and I don't think that's haphazard. I think it's purposeful because if you're an attentive Bible reader, you're seeing that all the requirements of the sacrificial system are being met in the death of Christ. You know, And even, again, we talked about this before uh, a couple weeks ago in the timing thing, but I mean, I, I think it's, there's significance even when it says that they're to slay the lamb. Remember this? Between the evenings is, is the way it's, it's phrased in the Hebrew or it just says in the evening in most translations in the English. It shows up in verse 6. But the idea there, I think it coincides with what the New Testament says when Jesus died uh, at 3 in the afternoon. You know, because it was right when they were starting to slay the, the Passover lambs. So even the timing of his death right i mean the location of his death right it was supposed to be uh north of the altar that's where you tie the burnt offering right it was to be outside the city guess what it was outside the city right i mean we could go on and on and on every ceremonial requirement met in the in the crucifixion remarkable you know man god knows what he's doing right (laughs) all right Rhonda, and then we'll come over here to carl yeah Oh, interesting. And so, when
1: all of the other plagues it nailed the Egyptians, that when I'm looking at it here, he's going to pass through
0: the Israelite camp first. Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting read. In other words, he's going to go through first on his way to smite the Egyptians. He says he's going to come check out because he says your houses in verse twenty, the end of the verse yeah interesting in other words the it begins that the judgment begins at the temple or you know the house of god is that where you were going with that ah that's good that's good because that's a peter a point peter makes in the new testament right that that phrase that judgment begins at the house of god right in other words we need right i mean we're god's people and we're the ones that are supposed to be in relationship with him so judgment starts there and then it ripples out you know, and and that's a similar idea with the Old Testament. You know, God says, come in Ezekiel again. He says, "I'm coming to my temple." Starts there, right? right. And but then that's good. That's good. Come check on them first. Excellent. Okay, Carl, and then we'll come back to Lisa.
1: I was just thinking the other day as I was rereading and. As far as I recall, there's only two times that there's, like, supernatural darkness in the middle of the day. And it's the ninth plague, and then right before Jesus' death, those three hours. Yep. And the plague was three days, and then three hours.
0: Oh, that's an interesting correlation. So back to our correlations with you know, the crucifixion, the ceremonial law. That's good. That's right. And I think there might be another plague in Book of Revelation where it's like you have like kind of the bookends of the Bible, if you will, Exodus, Revelation, and then you have the cross of Christ in the middle, a supernatural darkness. By the way, I think I mentioned this in brief when I taught through it years ago. But since teaching through it, I found like a couple of extra sources that I didn't have. I wasn't armed with this information earlier made me you know but but i did discover there's a couple of ancient sources that record that uh extra biblical sources that record a darkness a strange darkness that happened you know on passover you know uh, in the middle of the day and and it describes and i'd have to go back and you know give you the sources and look them up but it, it it's eyewitness accounts that I think one was down in like Egypt or, you know, somewhere in the south, one was further north in like uh, modern-day Turkey, but they were witnessing the, the, you know, this darkness that covered the land of Palestine, you know, or Israel. Really fascinating, you know, and, and in other words, just corroborating evidence of what God has done, you know, in the scripture, and that supernatural darkness. I like to say, you know, that God's, Covering because there's a special transaction that's taking place between father and son, right? The atonement is taking place, so he's you know, he's veiling it because it's the holy of holies, no one's supposed to see that, you know. And I I mean, it's kind of at least in my mind, some of the imagery perhaps behind that supernatural darkness. That's good, that's a good parallel. Uh, who else, Lisa, and then we'll go back to Warren. So likewise, Egyptians that did believe, would they have put the blood on their door, or would they have hid out his particular house? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. And I, probably an either-or, or even a mixture thereof. Did everyone catch that? In other words, there were Israelis, I'm sure, right, that did not believe, and therefore did not put the blood on the door. But what about the Egyptians that did believe? What did they do? Did they put blood on their door, or did they retreat to an Israeli home, you know, either way, they would have been honoring the command. You know, I think that's a good question. it makes you wonder. Didn't
1: you he say he would have just going smite or kill the corner of the
0: Egyptians, not the Israelites? No, he's uh, we talked about that earlier. It was a couple weeks ago. But it's yeah, he says anyone, Israelite or or Egyptian, that didn't put the blood on the door. Yeah, was would have would have been subject to the was the slaughter.
1: That's why Moses said don't go
0: outside. Exactly. He says you don't go outside. You stay in there until morning. You know, because he says, I remember this was back in chapter 11, but he says at midnight is when that angel's coming through. You know, or the destroyer, whoever it might be. Yes, sir? I was thinking back to the John 10 that was
1: mentioned before. Mm hmm. thieves will go in windows and other places. Mm-hmm. So it's protection. The Egyptian had that protection because they had doors, but their door was useless mm. unless it had the blood. Yeah. so that—that's like here you have everything, all your strength, all your power, symbolized by the
0: door. It's good. Again, it does you absolutely no good unless it has the blood of Jesus That's right. That's right. The blood of the, the Lamb. Ultimately yep. the
1: blood of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So it's it's like <coughs> coming back to that and saying, and for us it would be, you know, we could have all kinds of doors. We can have a wonderful door
0: that's strong and that's right. will work against the whole world. That's good. But if it doesn't have the blood of the lamb on it, it's worthless. Amen. That's exactly right. That's good. Amen. Amen. And that's a powerful thought when you when you think about, you know, in other words, are you agreeing with, with Gordy's thought that maybe in the imagery here you have, you know, Yahweh, the father, you know, the, the door with the blood on it representing Christ. In other words, he's over the home protecting it. And then the destroyer would be demonic or satanic spirit. Is it, so I like that. That's good. That's good. That's good, that's good thought. Joe. Oh, good observation. So, so can did everyone catch that? Can you say it again, Joe?
1: Verse 30. Go ahead. a house was Yeah. So, that the their house Yeah.
0: No, you're right. It doesn't say that. We're just assuming that that might be a possibility. But I, you're right. I, I don't know a place where it says they didn't, right? We'll just, that's a good point. Yes? I don't know if the original word here is for house either. Is that house is in structure? Is that house that is in the house of, you know, a certain family, which would incorporate many houses, mm-hmm. physical houses? Well, so the tricky thing is in Hebrew, it's the same word. No. <laughs> yeah, bayet. Bayet <laughs> is house. Yeah, and it's the same because it can be a physical structure or a household, meaning a family. Could be many exactly. Yeah, could be many structures. Yep, absolutely. That's good. Excellent observation there. All right, anybody else? Boy, this is good. You know, I want to I'm, slow you down. I'm
1: thinking the scriptures
0: Yeah, so, so think about that for a second. I think that reminded me of, of, you know, that's a good observation, the idea of the door. Because don't forget, you know, again, we talked about it earlier, but all these different uh, superstitions associated with these ancient Near Eastern cultures, most, I mean, most if not all of the Egyptian households would have had idols or charms or something to protect their door. Right, so kind of going back to Warren's point. they had doors. They had gods, right? They had charms. They had everything that they had to protect, but at the end of the day, it was useless. It was worthless unless it was the blood of the Lamb. Exactly. And it's the same for us today, right? I mean, whether you place your faith in anything else, right? even good moral standing or you know, fill in the blank, but you place your faith in anything else but the blood of the Lamb, it's going to be a false door, right? It's it's not going to provide the protection. That's good. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, ouch, ouch. There's a practical application, right? What about all the preppers and survivalists that are not Christians, right? They're trying to, yeah, think of every other thing to protect them. Yeah, strong doors, all their charms and whatever. <laughs> That's right? But at the end of the day, there's only one real source of protection. Amen. That's good. Yeah. So in Proverbs, when it says that those who build high
1: thresholds invite disaster, is that talking about building up your door super super secure that it ends up hurting
0: you in the end? Yep. Absolutely. It's the exact same thing. Yeah. That's right. You trip over the threshold. That's right. No, that's, exact, that's exactly it. And Proverbs warns us, right? Where we become overconfident in our own savvy, our resources, our plans, our whatever, you know. But at the end of the day, we're not trusting the Lord, so we come to ruin. That's exactly right. Because there's only one thing that, as I often say, if, if it's got an expiration date on it, you know, then don't trust it. You know, <laughs> it's like it's, it can't ultimately save you, right? But there is one eternal, infinite you know, all-powerful being that we can trust. So, amen. Boy, that's good. Okay, so we didn't get uh, through the chapter this evening, but that's okay. Next time, we'll come back and look at uh, this. You know, again, we're looking at this, uh, the instructions that Moses gives. I think we, we got through that, but then we'll come back next time and we'll look at, you know, verse 29 and following the actual smiting of the firstborn, the exodus itself being kicked off. All right, And then once we get through that, I'd like to pause probably before we do the regulation you know, uh, at the end of chapter 12 and chapter 13 and do a quick excursus just because this is an often asked question, a highly debated subject in scholarship, and it's important for biblical inerrancy. Um, but we'll give a, a lecture to the date of the Exodus. When did it happen and why is that important? Um, because it's, it's one of the number one things used by secularists to try and discredit the Bible. And so we'll give a lecture to that, because uh, if you haven't thought it, uh, you will next, next time <laughs> when we talk about it. And, and you may get asked about it, because it, it does come up a lot. It's, it's one of the number one attacks against the Bible. So, all right, but we're out of time for tonight. right? Don't you just hate the end of the hour? That was so much fun, right? You all are a blessing. No better way to spend a Wednesday night than I can think of. So let's pray. Yes?
1: The, the exodus is in such question with all the archaeologists who say this never happened. Yeah. Because they said the timing is off, you know, you're wrong. Yeah. And so that, that is an important, important part.
0: That and that's, and that's it, because that is the, okay, I, I don't want to get into my own lecture, but you're right. Because the archaeology is there. But what they do to deny it is they shift dates. They shift dates. dates. That's their most effective tool is they just try to late date it or early date it. They just try and mess with the numbers because they can't deny the evidence is there, but they try to reinterpret the evidence, hide evidence, deny evidence, but they misdate all the time. That's their number one weapon. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So it's an important thing because, I mean, if you read most secular archaeologists today, they're going to you know, deny the Exodus ever occurred. They're going to deny the conquest ever occurred.
1: That group that does the, um, the videos on the creation? Ham? Ham? No, it isn't. It's the other Creation today, I think is what it's called. Anyway, um, they, had, uh, they did a video on the Exodus, mm-hmm. and they showed, like, there was this big sandstone wall up, and they did a timeline
0: and they slid back and forth. Yes, yes, I've seen that. Yeah, that was
1: really good.
0: Yes. Yeah, patterns of evidence. Mm-hmm. Isn't it patterns of evidence? It could be patterns
1: of evidence.
0: I think it was patterns of evidence. Yeah. I forget the guy's name, but yeah. Yeah, and he's got some helpful insights yes, there. He, really does. he does. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's close in prayer and call it a night, as sad as it might be. And then we'll dismiss. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Lord, the joy it is to study your word in company with your people governed by your spirit. Lord, there's there's no higher privilege uh, than us coming to know you better through your word. Uh, Lord, and we're so grateful for the privilege of studying in community and, Lord, uh, coming to a greater, deeper awareness of who you are and what you've done. And Lord, thank you for tonight and the discussion and, and just the contemplation, uh, Lord, of, of your all-powerful hand. You're protecting uh, each household that had faith in the blood of the Lamb and how that is true of us. Uh, Lord, all the more as we discuss the the book of life and the Lamb's book of life, Lord, we ask that each of us would ask that most important question and make sure that we can answer it, whether or not our name is written in that book. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to hold to that in truth, to hold in confidence, uh, Lord, uh, to the cross work of Christ, our protector. Uh, Lord, we are so grateful for your goodness and your grace, and we pray your blessing upon our, our remaining studies and this blessed book of the book of Exodus. Teach us, Lord, we pray, tutor us for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen. amen.